Hebrews 11 is found in your pew Bibles in, on page 1007. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, happy Sunday in June. It's good to be with you guys and uh, digging into God's Word together. Kids, I know we got you in the service uh, today as well, so thank you for being with us, and uh, I'll see if I can make it the sermon interesting for you. I can't make any promises, though, but we'll see what happens. We're working our way through uh, the book of Hebrews. Our sermon series is called Steady On. The focus of the book of Hebrews and the focus of our sermon series is on perseverance. It's about sticking it out in the faith. And uh, faith, for many of us, at times can be a bit of a tricky thing. Not infrequently, our faith can be clouded by doubt. Now, I don't fault folks who are struggling uh, with doubt, struggling with their faith. I know some folks who don't struggle with their faith, and I say, God bless them, truly. That's a great place to be if you don't struggle with your faith. But most of us do struggle at times with doubt. We struggle with our faith, and I've wrestled at, with doubt at various times uh, in my life, and I've talked uh, with many of you all uh, as your pastor who have also wrestled uh, with doubt. Some of the folks that I talk to are new believers who are just trying to sort out all the questions they have. There's a lot of interesting and confusing things in the scriptures or the Christian faith. And so sometimes you're just as a new believer, you come with, with some doubt and confusion. Sometimes I'm talking uh, to mature Christians who have been following the Lord for a, a long time, who have walked with God, seen God so work in their life. But lately, they've, they've been rethinking some things. And they're not quite as sure as they used to be. Perhaps some of the questions are intellectual questions that can't be resolved. Or perhaps there are existential questions that aren't easily shaken. But in either case, there are questions. And then there's some of you, I know, who attend here regularly, 
uh, week after week, who wrestle with doubt and faith and has prevented you from conversion. It's prevented you from coming and owning Christ as your own. You're drawn to Christianity. You willingly come to church each Sunday. You find Jesus and his teachings attractive, but your doubts keep you from converting. I'm not going to resolve everyone's doubts this morning. That isn't the point of this sermon. Instead, I want us to, to have, I want to help, help us get a biblical perspective about faith and doubt, specifically as it relates to perseverance, which is the theme of the book of Hebrews, and then also this issue of conversion. And in particular, I want to answer this question from our text. How strong does my faith have to be in order for it to count? How strong does my faith have to be in order for it to count? Or we could say it like this. How much faith do I need for it to be considered real faith? How much faith do I need for it to be considered real faith? Christians here this morning, this is particularly a sermon for you, especially if you're doubting, if you're in a season of doubt. Maybe you're not currently in a season of doubt, but maybe in the future you will be. Pay attention to this sermon because faith and perseverance are tied together in Hebrews. If we were to persevere in the faith or persevere in our relationship with Jesus, we've got to persevere in faith, right? So perseverance and faith are tied together. For my non-Christian friends that are with us this morning, I just encourage you to pay attention to this sermon because faith and conversion are tied together. If you're coming, it's because there's something about Christianity that's curious and drawing to you. There's a, a draw to conversion, but you haven't yet crossed the threshold. You're not going to cross the threshold without faith, so faith and conversion go together. These are tied together. Our text, which has already been read for us, Hebrews 11, 1 through 7, tackles the issue of faith head on. Faith has been talked about all throughout the book of Hebrews, but here in chapter 11, the author zeroes in on this issue of faith. <clears throat> what I want to do this morning is make three observations from the text about the nature of faith. Three observations about the nature of faith, and then I want to pull those observations together to answer our principal question about how strong our faith needs to be in order for it to count as real faith. All right, observation number one, we begin in verse one. Here's the first observation to make about the nature of faith from this text. Faith looks to the future. Look what it says in verse one, right as it gets started. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. To hope for something is to have some expectation or desire for something in the future. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he says, we don't hope for things that we already have. So if we already had them, we wouldn't be hoping for them. We hope for things we don't have. The author here in Hebrews is working from that same mindset that, we, that faith is a hope of things in the future. Oftentimes, though, we tend to think of faith only or primarily as looking back over our shoulder. We think of faith as a belief in the historical accuracy of the gospel narrative, the details concerning Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and so forth. So that when we exhort people to 
have faith in Jesus or to believe in Jesus, believe in faith, kind of the same word, we often mean something like, believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Believe how Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Have faith in Jesus. Have faith in what he did 2,000 years ago in the past. That kind of backward-looking faith is indeed an important aspect of faith. So that shows up all the time in the Bible. So I'm not saying that's not an important aspect of faith. 1 Corinthians 15, which has both backward and forward-looking faith, starts off with backward-looking faith. But in Hebrews, the author is not primarily concerned, and particularly here in 11, about backward-looking faith. He's not talking about the faith that looks back to what Jesus has done in the past. Instead, throughout Hebrews, faith looks ahead towards the things that we are hoping will come to us in the future. This future orientation of faith can be seen all throughout Hebrews 11, and we're going to spend this week and the next two weeks after that sorting out all that God's Word says here in Hebrews 11, and we'll see this future orientation. But to cheat a little bit ahead to make the point, in verse 10, the author speaks of Abraham, who by faith was looking forward to the heavenly city. Or verses 14 and 15, the people of God, by faith, were seeking a homeland that was waiting out ahead of them, not looking back to where they had come from, but looking ahead to where they were going. Or verse 20, the great patriarch Isaac, by faith, invoked future blessings over his son Jacob. So faith in Hebrews is not simply about believing historical realities of Jesus' past. Rather, faith is about believing the historical realities of Jesus' promised future reward. All throughout the letter of Hebrews, the author has been underscoring this principal point that God has promised an eternal reward for those who persevere. Faith is believing that God is good for it, that his word is reliable, that the reward that he is promising will be worth the cost one has to pay. So when the author says to his readers, have faith, he doesn't just mean keep believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. He more deeply means keep believing that God's promise is true. Keep believing that what you long for, that what you do not yet possess, will be given to you in the end. Faith, then, in the frame of Hebrews, looks forward to the future with the hope of securing God's reward. Not in the sense of jumping through a number of hoops and then God grants the reward out as though it's some sort of prize, but God himself is the prize that we strive for. Jesus is the prize that we strive for. To know him is to know eternal life. That's why Jesus says that in prayer to the Father, says to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that is eternal life, right? So this is the prize we strive for, the eternal life reward that is given to us is God, it is Jesus himself. But this is the point of 1028, or rather 928. You can just look over perhaps on the page to your left. The author is underscoring Jesus coming as a sacrifice for sins. He talks about how Jesus, the first time he comes, when he came 2,000 years ago, that first time, that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to put away sins. But then Jesus, 
verse 28 of chapter 9, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will come a second time. So it's not just looking back over our shoulders at what Jesus did the first time, but it's looking forward to him coming the second time. And look what the author says. Not to deal with sin. It's not going to come as a sacrifice for sin. He already did that one time. That was sufficient. That's done. He's dealt with sin. He will come a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Right? So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus came in the past. He did a bunch of stuff. He's secured salvation, but salvation still waits for you in the future. He's still coming again to bring salvation. We have a deposit. The deposit is the way the Apostle Paul puts it together in Ephesians 1. We have a deposit of salvation now. Right? So we come in faith and we get a deposit of salvation, but only a deposit. At the day of resurrection, we get the whole thing. So when Jesus came the first time, we got the down payment or the deposit of that coming, that salvation that he brought. But he's coming the second time, and he's going to bring the whole package of salvation to us. Right? So, if, so the observation number one is faith has a future orientation that doesn't just look back to Jesus' first coming. It looks forward to Jesus' second coming. Observation number two, faith compels obedience. Faith compels obedience. Because faith looks to the future, it's the key to obedience. This really is the whole point of chapter 11. It's going to be made over and over and over again. Right? It is through faith that the people of God obeyed God. We can see it here, though, in verses 4 through 7 in our text. The author mentions three principal characters of the Old Testament. Really, he's going to run, in all chapter 11, he's going to run through a kind of chronology, as it were, through the Old Testament, highlighting how people by faith have lived throughout their lives and received commendation from God. He starts with Abel, who's the first example of faith that we find, and then he goes to Enoch, and then he goes to Noah. But he notes here in verse 4 that by faith, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice and received God's commendation. Verse 5, he moves on to Enoch. Enoch is a kind of a mysterious figure in the Old Testament, uh, early pages uh, of the days before the flood. But Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. And because he pleased God, God took him. He never died. He didn't, he didn't go the natural way of the flesh like we all do. But God took him and, and was spared from death. And then in verse 7, we have the story of Noah. Many of us are, of course, familiar with the story of Noah. But Noah, by faith, built an ark and became an heir of righteousness. All three men took God at his word, believed in what he said, and acted accordingly. They took God at his word. They believed what he said. They had faith in what he said. And then they acted accordingly. What would have happened, though, if they had not believed God? I think Noah is perhaps the easiest example to get our head around with this. But if Noah had not believed God about the flood, he wouldn't have built the ark. If he didn't believe what God had said to him, if he didn't have faith in what God had said to him about what was going to come in the future, he would not have built the ark he would not have become an heir of righteousness, and he would have perished with that wicked generation when God destroyed the world. Faith 
compels obedience. If we believe, then we obey. That's the author's major point throughout chapter 11 about faith. God has promised a reward to all who persevere in faithfulness to Jesus. And because there's this reward that comes to all who persevere, that's why the author says in verse 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. Not because faith is something in and of itself, but rather because faith compels us to pursue God. Look here in verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That translation there, maybe it could go differently. It, must, it could say, must believe that he is, which would be a reference back to Exodus when God revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. I am the one who is. I'm the existing one. And so the author might be saying here in chapter 11 that we must believe that, that the God of the Bible Right? The one who is, the God who is, the real God. He's, we must believe that he exists, that he's real, and that he rewards those who seek him. In order to draw near to God, we need to know who he is, and we need to believe that he rewards us for seeking him. To the degree that we believe in the integrity and the reliability of God's promise, then we're going to persevere in obedience. Okay, so I was trying to think about a way to explain this, kind of flesh it out a little bit, and uh, this is the illustration I came up with. In July, as you may or may not know, but in July, the, we keep track of attendance here behind the curtain, let you in a little on behind the curtain. We treat, keep track of attendance, and July is always our lowest attendant month every year. So everyone's on vacation, and they're going around about, I'm taking vacation in July, right? So... What if we all got together at the staff meeting and we were thinking, how can we shore up our attendance numbers in July? And then we decided the best way to do that, infallibly, would be to offer a million dollars to everyone who had perfect attendance in July in the worship service. So there's four Sundays in July, right? And if you attend every Sunday in July, sign the welcome register and proof that you were here. On July 28th, that last Sunday, we will just hand out checks for a million dollars to everybody that was here on that fourth Sunday in July. If you really believe me, now many of you would not believe me. In fact, very few of you would actually believe me, right? <clears throat> but if you really believed me that there really was a reward for a million dollars for attending just four weeks of church, that would motivate you to make whatever changes need to be made to your July schedule to make sure that you were here. Now, there might be like 1% of you that are like, I have so much money that a million dollars would not change my travel plans. But for most of us, for most of us, for me even, right, I would cancel my vacation and I would be sure to be here every Sunday in July. I'd rearrange travel schedule. We would push through sickness. We would corral crabby kids. I mean, it's, it's family worship through July. Who wants to go to that? You know, and so now I got to bring the kids. But you'd bring the kids anyway, right? We would put up with no parking because it'd be full. Nothing would stand in our way if we really believed that there was a reward of that magnitude at the end of July. In the same way, faith in God's promised reward inspires perseverance, Again, he's the promise, 
right? He's the reward, right? He's the million-dollar magnitude, right, for persevering through family worship for July, as it were, right? So he's the one that we're striving for. And this is why we can say that salvation and perseverance are by faith, right? Because if we really believe that there's a reward waiting at the end, right, then we persevere in that belief, through that belief, all the way to the end. Salvation and perseverance are by faith, and at the same time, we can insist that saving faith is necessarily active and striving towards obedience. All right, can you imagine a world in which Noah, after having received the word from the Lord that there was a flood coming and was going to destroy the whole world and that he was to build an ark, could you imagine the world in which Noah says, oh, I believe God, and then does nothing? takes no action. Faith doesn't just sit on its hands. It gets to work. All right, so observation number one is faith looks to the future. Observation number two is faith compels obedience. And then observation number three, we're going to go back to verse one here. Uh, this is a little bit trickier to, I think, get our head around here, but let me see if I can help us out. Observation number three, faith is a substance. Faith is a substance. Verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, generally speaking, English translations are very reliable. If you uh, don't know how to speak Greek or read Greek or read Hebrew or speak Hebrew, you don't have to worry about it. If you've got an English translation, they are very reliable and you can trust your English translation. And most often when I'm preaching, I just preach straight out of the English text of our Pew Bible, the English Standard Version. And that's because you don't, you don't need like your pastor telling you every week, now what your Bible says is this, but what it really means is this, right? Because by the end of that, you get a few weeks of that, you're like, I don't even know what this book says anymore. I can't trust it, right? So your English translation is very reliable. But this verse has had a couple of different ways that it's been translated over the years. And the more that I've studied this verse and looked at it, the more I've become convinced that the English translation we use, so we use the English Standard Version, points us in an unhelpful direction, especially if we are wrestling with the issue of doubt. And so that's where we started our sermon, right, is how much faith do I need for it to be real faith? And how strong does my faith have to be to count? Right, so there's implying that there's some doubt there. In our English Standard Version, we read that faith is an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. This translation encourages us to think about faith as a subjective frame of mind, a strong sense of confidence, right? I have assurance, I have conviction about what I'm hoping for. But if you're wrestling with doubt, maybe you're like, shoot, I guess I don't have faith then, because that's what's in question here. Like, my assurance isn't assurance. It's not conviction, right? I'm, I'm struggling there with assurance and conviction. Is that really what faith is? Is it primarily a subjective state of mind, a subjective state of assurance and conviction that God's promises are true? Defining faith as assurance and conviction doesn't leave a lot of room for the 
small mustard seed sized faith that Jesus talks about in Mark 4.31 and other places in the Gospels. Let me see if I can help us out a little bit here. The Greek word in verse 1 translated as assurance in our English translation is the Greek term hypostasis. The lexicons go a number of different directions with this term. And many of them do, in fact, give the definition of assurance. So it's not completely out of character to go in the direction of assurance. But not all of them give the definition of assurance. At least one prominent lexicon, the BDAG, for those that are uh, seminary or doctoral students, if you want to look it up, gives this uh, comment about this term. The sense of confidence or assurance for Hebrews 11.1 1, has enjoyed much favor but must be eliminated since examples of it cannot be found. The word hypostasis is actually the same word that is frequently translated uh, and, and used in early Greco-Roman theological and philosophical discourse that we translate it as essence or substance or nature. It's a word that speaks about what kind of thing a thing is. Here's this thing. What kind of thing is it? It's its nature or its substance or its essence tells us about what kind of thing it is. In fact, this is the same word that early theologians used to begin to speak about the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Who is God the Son in relation to the Father? Is he the highest creature that God has made? How do we understand the identity of the Son? And so they used this term, hypostasis. And they would say, as... God, or God the Son has the same essence or the same hypostasis as God the Father, the same nature. This is, in fact, the way that our author here uses this term, the same term, in Hebrews 1.3. The Son, the author tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, of his hypostasis. So who is the Son? The Son is the same nature, the same hypostasis as the Father. And I think the relationship between Jesus and the Father helps us understand a bit of how this word is used later then, again, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, to note the relationship between faith and the things hoped for. Insofar as the Son is the same hypostasis as the Father, the same substance as the Father, there is clear continuity between the Son and the Father. They are of the same. They're the same thing in, in many respects, right? The Father is in heaven beyond our grasp or comprehension. We're not in heaven with the Father, but we do possess the Son. And to possess the Son is to possess the Father. This is why Jesus, when he's talking with his disciples, the disciples say to him, just, just show us the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus is like, have I been with you all this time and you still do not know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. To have Jesus is to have the Father. The point being that when two things share the same substance, to have one is to have the other. I think the author is making a similar point about the relationship between faith and the thing hoped for. Faith is the substance 
of what we are hoping to possess one day in the future. Faith is the present imprint or representation of the coming heavenly reward. We don't yet have the thing that we are looking forward to and hope, but we do have faith. So I take the author's point to be that possessing faith is like already possessing the thing that you are hoping for. So here I think the King James Version, the old King James Version, translates this verse a bit better when it reads like this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The King James Version moves away from and drops the subjective nature of faith, the frame of mind nature of faith, and moves it more into a comment about the possession of faith being like possessing the thing that we are having faith in or hoping towards. The author is encouraging the Hebrews to hold on to faith because in some way to hold on to faith is to hold on to the things that they are hoping for. So if you got in the mail from your rich uncle a deed to a house in some other state that you had never seen, but the letter said, I've given you uh, one of my mansions in some other state. The deed, the deed is like the imprint or the substance. It is the evidence, as the the, uh, King James uh, translates that second term, evidence. It is the evidence of the thing that you're hoping for. You don't have, you haven't seen the house yet. In one sense, you haven't taken possession of the house, but you have the evidence of the house in the deed itself. Faith is like that. Just as we possess the Father through the Son, we possess the things hoped for through faith. All of that is a long way and perhaps a too complex way of saying that I don't think the author of Hebrews is here trying to make a statement about the subjective quality of faith, as though faith has to be without any doubt in order to be real. Faith that has no doubt, that's a great kind of faith. That's a fantastic kind of faith. All of us should be striving for that kind of faith. I could wish and pray that all of us would have that kind of faith. And maybe you've had seasons in your life where you've had such clarity and God's working in your life and illumination through the Holy Spirit that all your doubts had dropped away. And in that moment, there's such freedom there in that kind of faith. But that's not the only kind of faith that counts. That's not the author's point in Hebrews 11. The author is not saying that unless your faith is without doubt, it doesn't count. So how strong does my faith have to be then? All right, number one, our observation is that faith is future-oriented. Number two, faith compels obedience. Third observation, faith is a substance, not necessarily just a frame of mind. So how strong then, now to our question we raised at the beginning, how strong does my faith need to be in order for it to count as real faith? Talking about perseverance and conversion, I want to tackle perseverance first with this question. So from the framework of perseverance, how strong does my faith have to be to be real faith in order to persevere? Here's the answer. Your faith needs to be as strong as it takes to persevere. That's the answer to that question. How, faith does your, how strong does your faith have to be in order to persevere? It has to be as strong as it needs to be in order for you to persevere. So go back to my money illustration about perfect attendance through July. 
let's say I offered that out, right? Many of you, probably all of you, would have doubts about whether I'm really going to follow through with a million dollars for every, we just did a $600,000 capital campaign, right? If we're giving away a million dollars, I mean, you're full of doubt, right? You would have some doubts. But at the end of the day, if I really meant it, right, if I really did mean it, at the end of the day, your doubts would be irrelevant when it comes to receiving the reward if you make it through every single Sunday. In the same way, the reward of perseverance is granted to all who persevere, regardless of how shaky their faith was along the way or how many doubts they had. Right? At no point in Scripture do we see a passage that tells us that when we come before God in the final judgment, we're going to be judged according to the integrity of our faith. As though God is going to set our works aside and he's going to just look at our faith and see whether there was any doubt mixed in with our faith. And if there was doubt mixed in with our faith, then he doesn't give us the reward. God doesn't examine the quality of our faith to determine whether or not to give us the reward. And for doubters, maybe that brings you a sense of peace. Because you've been persevering, you've been struggling, you've been doing your best to maintain faith to Christ in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And you're worried that when you get to the day of judgment, God's going to, he's going to look at your faith as the determinative thing. And he's going to assess the integrity of your obedience based entirely on whether or not you had any holes in your faith. If you have enough faith to persevere, you have enough faith. That's the point. If you have enough faith to persevere, then you do have enough faith. That's not to say we should let doubt and unanswered questions unnecessarily fester and grow. Right? We don't want to give that an opportunity. Invariably, there will come times in our lives, just like it did for the readers of Hebrews, when faith will cost us something. When the Hebrews first received the gospel, no doubt, things were joyful and, and easy for them. But over time, they began to be faced with persecution and then their faith was tested. It happens for us in very similar ways as well, where our faith is very often tested. And the stronger your faith is, the more sure you will be about God and his promise, and the greater capacity you will have to endure the trials of this life that push you towards apostasy. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what trials you may be going through, what intellectual struggles you might have. I don't know how strong your faith is this morning. But are you persevering? Are you still showing up to church every Sunday, still claiming to be a Christian, still participating in communion, still striving towards obedience? Then you are persevering, and you have enough faith to persevere. That's what your faith is getting you. You don't have to eliminate your doubts. Your faith just has to be stronger than your doubts. You don't have to get rid of all doubts. Your faith just has to be stronger than your doubts. It's an important point to make for those that are struggling with issues of doubt and faith. Hang in there. Don't give up. Questions and doubts come and go. Seek out some help. Talk to someone. You can probably get some relief and some help for your questions. And then I would encourage you to consider the alternative. 
Jesus in John chapter 6 was preaching some hard words. He was saying some difficult things. And many of the people that had been following him turned back and left him. And Jesus said to his 12 disciples, he said, are you guys going to leave me too? And they said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. No one else out there is offering eternal life. We don't understand all that stuff you just said in John chapter 6. It's raised some questions for us too. We're also confused, right? We've got some, some unanswered questions and perhaps even some doubts, but where else are we going to go? We've got no other place to go. We're sticking it out with you. If you're struggling with doubt and you're, you're persevering through some difficulties, like the readers of Hebrews, you might have some motivation to, to move away from Christ just like those early followers of Jesus did, right? But then consider where else are you going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else can usher you into or even claims to usher you into God's presence, right, and to give you eternal life? And so hang on to your faith. Hang on to your faith. Perhaps you have not yet converted. You join us every Sunday or most every Sunday, and you're drawn to Christianity. You find Jesus attractive. Perhaps you come with the spouse because the spouse is a Christian and you're not yet a Christian, right? But you come and you think about converting, but you just have some doubts that stand in the way of you converting. How much faith do you need in order to go through with conversion? Are you willing to convert? Then you have enough faith to convert. That's the answer, right? Does your faith trump your doubts? If your faith trumps your doubts, then you have enough faith to convert. Stop waiting until every doubt is put to rest. That's never going to happen. Maybe you're like, I'm 51% I'm Jesus, is, Jesus is true. But I'm going to wait till I get to 78% Jesus is true. Then I'm going to wait till I get to 86%. And really, I'd like to get to 97% right? You keep waiting, right? If you're at 51% that Jesus is true, your faith trumps your doubts, what's stopping you from moving forward, right, and giving your life to Christ? How certain do you need? How many questions do you need to have answered, right? They will never all be answered. All of us will have unanswered questions. I still have unanswered questions. There are arguments that are for God and Jesus. There are arguments that are against God and Jesus, if in your mind you believe the arguments for God and Jesus outweigh the arguments against God and Jesus, then stop delaying. Stop delaying. Now is the day of salvation for you. Why are you waiting any longer? At the end of July, uh, we're not going to be giving out a million dollars to perfect attendance, I'm sorry to say. Right. But we will be doing baptisms. And maybe you've been coming... And you've been just hovering right around the edge of conversion. And today the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you have enough faith to move forward with conversion. Then why not make that day, July 28th, the day that you formally and publicly step into the Christian community and say, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I'm, 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 I don't have all the things figured out. I don't got all the questions answered. But I believe in Jesus, and I'm casting my lot with him, and I'm moving forward in confidence and hope as much as God gives me. 
Ultimately, the scriptures say that faith is a gift from God. It's something that God gives. We can't gin it up on our own. Right? We can't force ourselves to believe things that we don't really believe. Right? Faith is a gift from God. And God gives this gift of faith to us as we open up our hearts to receive it. Right? Even if you're not ready to receive Jesus yet, then open up your heart to receive the gift of faith. Right? Let even that moment of opening your heart to receive the gift of faith be the work of God's grace in your life to cause you to seek after him. God loves you. God loves us. God has promised great things for us. He calls us to believe them, not perfectly, not without any kind of doubt. We don't go through most of our lives like that with anything, let alone the Christian life, right? But he calls us to believe it as best we can, right? And to, to stay the course and to move forward confident that he will reward those who earnestly seek him. We're going to close out singing a song here that talks about the promise of God and how God and his promise, his promise is sure and his promise is true. So as we sing that song together as a congregation, reminding ourselves about the promise of God, let's sing that song in faith. Amen? Father, thank you for giving us Jesus, who is the forerunner, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, as we read about here, even in chapter 12. He's the perfect example of one who had faith, who didn't waver. Lord, his, his faith is, was perfect. We're not always so perfect in our faith, but we place our faith and trust in the one who was perfect. And we follow after him, Lord. Pray that you would now stir in the hearts of all of us here, Lord. Strengthen the faith of those who need it to persevere, for sure, to move forward in conversion, for sure, Lord. Strengthen all of our faith, Lord, so that our obedience also is strength. That we pray this, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.